Today's guests are Mary C. Murphy and Jonathan Evershed. Mary C. Murphy is the Head of Department of Government and Politics at University College Cork. She holds a Jean Monnet Chair in European Integration and is Senior Lecturer in Politics, specialising in the study of the EU and Northern Ireland politics. Jonathan Evershed was until recently the Newman Fellow in Constitutional Futures at University College Dublin, having been a postdoctoral fellow at University College Cork and obtained his PhD in Irish Studies from Queen's University Belfast. Mary and Jonathan co-authored A Troubled Constitutional Future, Northern Ireland After Brexit, published by Agenda Publishing in 2022. The book was awarded the Best Book Prize by the University Association for Contemporary European Studies, UASIS, in 2023. It examines the factors, actors and dynamics that are most likely to be influential and potentially transformative in determining Northern Ireland's constitutional future. The book offers an assessment of how Brexit and its fallout may lead to constitutional upheaval and a cautionary warning about the need to prepare for it. Welcome to Mary and Jonathan. So there was this very cavalier approach to the referendum on the part of the UK government, which was not mirrored by the Irish government's views on this matter, including because constitutional referendums are a fundamental part of the constitutional functioning of the Republic of Ireland. So the capacity for storing and retaining and using knowledge about Ireland in the British civil service is frankly lacking, deeply so. It speaks to the fact that there was so little pre-planning or contingency in place for either outcome, whether it was remain or leave. So the government was already a step behind. We're delighted to welcome Mary C. Murphy and, and Jonathan Evershed to discuss their prize-winning book, A Troubled Constitutional Future, Northern Ireland After Brexit, published by Agenda Publishing. Can we begin with a couple of questions we ask all of our guests? What led you to write the book and what are the main messages you intend to communicate? Well, hi, Hussein and Cleo, and many thanks for this invite. It's a, a real pleasure to be able to talk about the book. I guess in terms of our motivations for writing the book, we had been writing about Brexit previously, Jonathan and I, and we had been doing so uh, in the context of an ESRC project uh, between two unions, which was looking in some detail at the question of Brexit, specifically from an Irish perspective. But we were doing so in partnership with colleagues across the UK. So it became clear to us during that research process that there were a number of learnings that needed to take place across the UK more broadly about the implications of Brexit for the United Kingdom, because Although much of the discussion was focused on Northern Ireland and on the border issue, the ramifications of how that might be addressed are actually consequential for the United Kingdom, and not just politically and economically, but also constitutionally consequential, in that they did trigger, and they have continued to trigger, very substantial questions um, uh, around Irish unity, in the Irish context, but also uh, for, for Scotland and, and, and even for, for Wales to an extent as well. So we really wanted to we really wanted to drill down into that discussion and take as much as we could from what, what we had learned through the ESRC project and communicate it to a wider audience. Part of what we identified over the course of that um, Between Two Unions project was 
something that we talk about on the very first page of the book, which is the knowledge gap about Ireland, the island of Ireland, Ireland north and south in UK political culture, in British political culture, mainland British political culture, if you like. And that was a gap that our work over the course of that project looked to to fill. And, and uh, I suppose this book was the uh, our, our final offer, I suppose, our final contribution to trying to, to address that gap. So we talk on the very first page of the book about Tim Shipman's book, um, All Out War, which talks about, you know, the the referendum and and the early phase of, of the Brexit negotiations and so on. And there is a single mention of Ireland anywhere in that book. Uh, and it doesn't appear in the index. And we thought that that was a sort of symbolic uh, representation of the way that, that Ireland and the, the island of Ireland had featured first in the debate about uh, leave versus remain, and then latterly in terms of thinking about what Brexit would ultimately look like. And we all now know the consequences of that failure to think about the island of Ireland, the failure to think about um, Northern Ireland, its relationship with the Republic of Ireland and so on uh, within the context of, of that Brexit project. And can I ask something about that that um, broader project? Were you looking at public opinion? Were you look, how, are you, how are you sort of investigating um, public understandings? Well, we looked at a number of different dimensions. So so we looked at, I mean, Jonathan and I spent quite a bit of time looking at political parties on the island of Ireland, mm. um, because because that was essentially our, our primary focus. We did dip in as well to public opinion. Um, we looked at the behaviours of the British and Irish government, and we looked at interactions with the EU as well. So we we looked at the the, the question of Brexit uh, from through through a number of different lenses. Um, and that was a that was an important segue into developing a deeper understanding of the various different dynamics which were at play. And just just the last question about sort of contextualization. I just wondered if if you felt that this knowledge was once possessed in the UK and then has been sort of forgotten, or whether it it, it never existed on the part of the elites or population in general. Or... So on this, um, I defer really to one of our colleagues, uh, Etain Tannum, who's a specialist in the British-Irish relationship. And what her work on this sort of consistently shows is that that relationship relies ultimately on relationships between individual people in the Irish and British civil services. And it relies more than that on friendships between those people. So that such that when those people move on, as they inevitably do, that relationship then there's no institute there's very little institutional knowledge retained and that relationship then has to be built again when one or other of those people move on so the the capacity for sort of storing and retaining and using knowledge about Ireland in the British civil service is frankly lacking um deeply so um, and it's a reflection, I think, of, of wider dysfunctions in the British states, uh, which we'll probably get into over the course of this discussion, I'm sure. At the heart of the book is the argument that Brexit represents a critical juncture for Northern Ireland and its place in the UK's constitutional setup. Can you tell us what that means? What is a critical juncture? Sure. Well, we dipped into some of the literature around institutions uh, and, and and tried to find a way of of, of, of framing and conceptualising how Brexit might play out longer term 
from a from an exclusively constitutional perspective. So we know that when political systems experience some sort of rupture or some sort of shock, that it can have an impact. And the in impact can go one of two ways. It can lead us down uh, a similar path. It can mean that we muddle through or it can actually have a much more far reaching impact and lead to some type of transformative change which sets the country or the political regime or the system on, on a different route and sets it down a different road. So the idea of a critical juncture suggests that the Brexit rupture, if we label it as such, has, has the potential to lead Northern Ireland down a different constitutional route. And that route may be in the direction of Irish unity longer term. It may not, and and we we we're clear to say that in the book that there are there are options at at a critical moment during a, a shock of this particular scale and magnitude, and it is all very much dependent on how various different actors react to that shock, uh, the decisions that they make, and the positions that they take, and that all of that collectively will determine whether or not. A critical moment has the potential to become a critical juncture, which results in some type of transformational constitutional change. Now, I suppose what we know at this point is that we're perhaps still in that critical moment where various different parties are positioning themselves and where the entire Brexit process continues to play out, particularly now in the context of the Windsor Agreement and, and the protocol. Uh, but it may reach a point where that uh, where the options become so narrow that various different parties and citizens themselves choose an alternative future, which is outside of, of the United Kingdom. Great, thanks very much. And uh, also thinking about the, the, the notion of critical judgment, what what's changed? You, you make a point at the very start of the book that I don't think is very well understood in the UK. Um, that, and that's why the fact that Ireland and the UK were both members of the EU, um, of the EU made made the um, Belfast and Good Friday Agreement a possibility. So what specific threat did the UK's departure from the EU pose to the agreement? Well, the UK and Ireland joined the EU on the same day, 1st of January in 1973. And in a way... Ireland joined the EU. It, it was, of course, a voluntary decision, but it was very, very much influenced by the UK decision to join the EU because such was the, the closeness of the economic and trade relationship in particular that Ireland was, was effectively compelled to join. Otherwise, it being outside the single market and the UK being inside the single market would have been hugely economically problematic. So both countries joined at that time for primarily economic reasons. But as we move into the 1990s, the late 80s into the 1990s, and discussions around the peace process are beginning to crystallise, uh, it's dovetailing with that period when the EU is completing the single market. And the completion of the single market effectively means the removal of borders, and their borders to trade, their borders to the movement of people, their borders to services, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So there's a really neat correlation between the achievement of the single market and efforts on the island of Ireland to uh, to finalise the peace process and and agree the the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, and and the borders is a critical issue here because the opening of borders between North and South facilitates a, a closer relationship between North and South, but it's also symbolically important because it means that any barriers to movement other than security barriers have effectively been eliminated. And that's particularly important for nationalists on the island of Ireland, those who aspire to a united Ireland, because it, it allows them to identify 
much more closely with their southern neighbours. And, and it does so in ways which hadn't previously been acknowledged or, um, or facilitated. So there's a, a, a really helpful and, and useful issue of timing here in terms of the fact that the, the opening up of borders in the context of the single market and agreement on the Belfast Good Friday Agreement create conditions which are all about open borders which have economic effects, political effects, and they have a, a very important impact on identity as well. So they they, they really do help to, um, to embed much of the sort of critical infrastructure and framework within which the, the Good Friday Agreement is, is developed. If I may, the, the book does very well at detailing the marked differences in how the British and Irish governments approached the question of Brexit before, during and after the referendum. I mean, what explains this huge difference in the understanding of the implications of the referendum on the UK's departure, do you think? I suppose the, the critical starting point is where we started this discussion, which is about the which is in the lack of institutionalized knowledge of the, the 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 context that Mary has just outlined, whereby this intrinsic interrelationship between the Good Friday Agreement and its functioning, uh, the nature of that agreement and its relationship with the EU is fundamentally, you know, underpriced and misunderstood by a British political elite um, that frankly you know, didn't care anyway. <laughs> I mean, without wishing to put too fine a point on it, you know, the referendum was called with as no contingency planning, no thought given to what would happen if the vote went the way that he didn't want it to. Uh, this was essentially an exercise for managing dissent within the Conservative, you know, party management of the UK Conservative Party that was not supposed to yield the results it eventually did yield. And there was no thought in particular given to what would happen if the four different constituent parts of the United Kingdom voted in different ways, which, of course, they ultimately did. So there's the, fir the first issue is that, you know, lack of understanding of the nature at the heart of the British state. In the 50 years since the UK joined the EU, the British state has fundamentally changed. And that was not reflected in how the referendum was was thought of or its result planned for. And as I've already suggested, the actual the eventual result was not planned for at all. So there was this very cavalier approach to the referendum on the part of the UK government, which was not mirrored by the Irish government's views on this matter, including because constitutional referendums are a fundamental part of the constitutional functioning of the Republic of Ireland. So greater thought is necessarily given to the possible outcomes of those referenda on the part of the of the Irish government because referenda have a have a different function in the in the Irish constitutional order and then added to that is Ireland the Irish government's acute awareness of the issues that Mary has outlined of the fundamental reliance of the functioning of the Good Friday agreement on joint membership on the co-equal status that had been created between Ireland and the UK as, as joint members of the European Union. Yeah, and the only other point I would add to that is the role that your scepticism played within the British political system as well. You know, it really enabled a narrative and a rhetoric which was um, unhelpful during the campaign and following the campaign as well. And when you look at Britain and Ireland, 
they're fundamentally different in terms of Ireland being much more pro-European and Britain always have ha- having had a, a challenging relationship with, with the EU. So for Ireland, it was fundamentally important that in the immediate aftermath of the referendum, that the rest of the EU and the rest of the world understood unequivocally that Ireland saw its future within the EU. So Ireland was invested in protecting its interests, whereas the UK had a very different agenda at that time. And that agenda was complicated by the fact that Europe was a polarizing issue for the British electorate. And it was a polarizing issue for political parties. And it was even a polarizing issue within political parties. So it created a very, very complex and challenging environment within which the UK could even contemplate the referendum, but thereafter actually deal with the the consequences of the referendum outcome itself. In Ireland, there was a, a, a shared perspective across the political system that Ireland's future lay within the EU. And that was shared by all political parties of of all persuasions. And it was underpinned by very strong public support for Ireland's position. Yeah, thank you very much. I mean, it's it's interesting because this may go some way in explaining uh, uh, my next question, I suppose. The the book uh, refers to the joint letter by uh, DUP First Minister and Deputy First Minister from Sinn Féin in Northern Ireland. And it was sent to Theresa May in uh, August 2016. So we're just a couple of months after the actual referendum. And it's a joint letter in which they underline in very concrete terms the issue of the land border, but also specifically issues of ease of trade, the all-island electricity market, access to EU funds and and protection of the agri-food and fisheries sector, sector. Sorry. So I'm wondering what explains now that government knew in 2016, uh, Theresa May answered that letter, you make that clear in in the book too. Uh, How is it then that the UK government was either reluctant or or had a very slow ability to recognise those specific issues that (laughs) Brexit raised for Northern Ireland? So there's there's a phrase, and I I think it... I assume it sounds very Johnsonite, so I'm going to say it was Boris Johnson who argued that, and these are his words, I think, that the Northern Ireland tail should not be allowed to wag the British dog when it comes to Brexit. And I think that that does indicate a more general attitude at the heart of British government, certainly during this period, I would argue more generally, but certainly during the Brexit period, that Basically, issues in Northern Ireland should not be allowed to dictate the terms of Brexit for the rest of the United Kingdom, for which we can generally, in my view, read England. So in her early um, Brexit speeches, Theresa May, you know, where she outlined her kind of vision of what Brexit means, Brexit means. She talked about there will be no return to the borders of the past. End of discussion with evidently no consideration yet given to how that would be achieved. Boris Johnson, I think, fundamentally didn't care about Northern Ireland, and or actually did care about Northern Ireland insofar as it was a barrier to him achieving what he wanted to achieve politically. If we go back to Theresa May's premiership, there's this sense that the, the issues that the the reality of the issues dawned on her and and her government only quite slowly. (laughs) Um, And that it wasn't enough just to say 
that we are opposed to a hardening of the border, that something had to actually be done in order to, to ensure that that would be achieved. So what I'm suggesting is there was, I think, a wishing away of these issues, and that's quite consistent across this period on the part part of, of UK government, that, oh, oh, these will be fine. These are all, you know, and we can see that right from the outset, whereby the EU's insistent that Northern Ireland and the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland was an issue that had to be resolved, one of the three issues that had to be resolved in the first phase of Brexit talks before there could be any discussion about the future relationship between the UK and the EU. And there was very early resistance to that. No, 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 we can find, that's all fine. It doesn't matter. We can sort that out later. I think that, that that attitude sort of sort of underpins, you know, the answer to a, to a lot of the questions that 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 that, that we look to answer in, in the book, really. And it speaks as well to the fact that there was so little pre-planning or contingency in place for either outcome, whether it was remain or leave. So so the government was already a step behind. Uh Theresa May was a new prime minister working to establish her authority, and there was no clarity about precisely as Jonathan has described, what Brexit meant. That didn't come until 2017, early in 2017 with the Lancaster speech. So there, there really was a, a, a vacuum which was proving destabilising for Northern Ireland because it prevented any clear response as to how Brexit might play out, particularly on the border issue for, for Northern Ireland. So, so again, the British political system was, it was stilted and it was constrained by uh, the dynamics which which were at play for a new prime minister who who had who had no plan at that time one one of the very interesting sort of set of assumptions that you really do challenge in the book well really show they're unfounded is that there's a kind of assumption in the UK that politicians in well politicians and political parties in um, in Ireland are just sort of you know bent on achieving a united Ireland. And this is key to Fiona Foyle, Fiona Gale, but also, also Sinn Féin. And I really wanted you to say a bit more about, about, um, about them and, and why, you know, people, you know, you know, quite senior politicians, including John Bruton, would say, actually, we've got to be very, very careful when we're thinking about this. And this isn't, this shouldn't just, this isn't an automatic um, kind of desire or ambition on our part. I mean, it categorically was not the case that Brexit was seen as an opportunity to achieve a united Ireland on the part of either Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael or most other political parties within Ireland, if not all political parties. It categorically was not the case. And it remains the case that political parties like Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael are very, they're hesitant about the prospects of a united Ireland. They're concerned about the prospects of a united Ireland. And that's because if you think about what a united Ireland would entail, it would require political change, economic change. It would require a change of currency. It would require massive public policy change. It would require financial change. There's 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 a real concern about the magnitude and the scale of the change that would be required and how that might be potentially destabilizing for, for the island of Ireland. Because change always comes with risks, and we can't always be sure that a transition period will be will be stable. So that from, from the get-go was a really, really clear concern for Fianna Fáil and Finnegal. They never saw the Brexit referendum as being in any way part and parcel of some bigger agenda about constitutional change. And, and you can see that. I mean, Enda Kenny, who was Taoiseach at the time of the referendum, he went to the UK and he delivered speeches 
advocating for a remain result. So there's 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 no documentation. There are no speeches. There's no parliamentary questions. There is no private documents that we were able to unearth, which in any way demonstrated that Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael um, were, were pursuing this type of, of agenda. And just to add to that, there is um, a sensitivity to unionism as well, which is which is shared across the political parties, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. There's a frustration with unionism, but at the same time, I think there, there is also a, an attentiveness to, to unionist concerns about the prospects of a united Ireland. Um, but but yeah, I mean that 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 idea that Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael were in some way trying to engineer constitutional change is 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 grossly unfounded. Uh, yeah, the one of the um, you know one of the enjoyed is not the right word, but one of the funnier aspects of the d- discourse about Brexit. Uh, in the UK, red tops were their paint. Was it their painting of Leo Varadkar as some sort of rabid United Irelander? And you know, anyone with a rudimentary understanding of of Irish political culture uh, would would find that laughable. Frankly, Mary's already talked about the complete lack of evidence for such a position. Um, I'll talk a, a little about Sinn Féin, where there is a degree more ambiguity, um, perhaps, albeit that what I want to start by saying is that, you know, this idea of of leveraging Brexit in order to force the question of a united Ireland was levelled at, at, at Irish political parties across the spectrum, um, but perhaps most so at Sinn Féin. But one of the things that we argue in the book and have argued elsewhere is that when confronted with what Brexit meant for the island of Ireland and what it meant for the Irish border, Sinn Féin very quickly adopted a position whereby the risk inherent in that was much more, managing that risk was far more existential important than any potential opportunities that arose from Brexit for forcing the issue of a united Ireland. And we consistently found this to be the case. And there are some you know, striking quotes from, from our interviews with, with members of Sinn Féin in the book. I remember uh, one senior Sinn Féin politician saying, you know, building a united Ireland on, on the ruins, on the economic ruin um, of of a of a no deal wish to undertake, and so much like Fianna Foil and Fine Gael, and one of the things that we argue in the book is around this idea of donning the green jersey. That ultimately, all of Ireland's nationalist political parties were very much on the same page, and deliberately so, in addressing the risk that Brexit posed to the island of Ireland, rather than seeking to leverage any opportunities. That might, and in fact, often in our interviews with with members of Sinn Fein, the idea that there were any opportunities was was pushed back on. You know that, that this is not an opportunity. This is an existential crisis for the island of Ireland. There are no opportunities here for the party. So, even in the case of Sinn Fein, where we have some early indications, perhaps that this was identified as an opportunity to advance the cause of Irish reunification in the short term, 
any indication of that very, very, very quickly dropped away and gave way to an, to an acknowledgement of a need to present a united front across the, the broad spectrum of Ireland, Irish nationalist opinion and Irish nationalist political parties in order to pursue the outcome that was, you know, ultimately secured. I mean, what's what's really interesting is despite kind of unionist concern about the first, the backstop and the protocol, now the Windsor framework, is the idea that in many ways, actually, it copper fastens Northern Ireland's place in the union. And that is a position that has been supported by and is the product in part of Sinn Féin's work during the Brexit process. So there is a world in which the protocol was celebrated as a way of securing the future of the union after and Northern Ireland's place in it after Brexit. But that that world is not the one that we're living in. But it's an indication of where Sinn Féin's politics and politicking around Brexit ended up, I think. Yes, I mean, I think the one one of the real strengths of the book is you know, the sort of detailing of this kind of nuance. But I must say, the use of interviews is great because it really does, you know, sort of reveal complexity on of thought across the political spectrum, including what one might well describe the, the extremes. I and mean, it's really, it's really very interesting. What seemed to emerge for me from the book, though, was that the, the a sort of a, you know an asymmetry of outcome for Sinn Fein and on the one hand, than the DP on the other. Is that is that something that you you recognise? Sinn Féin are riding pretty high in the polls, north and south of the border. The extent to which that is directly attributable to Brexit and their position on Brexit is open to question, particularly in the Republic of Ireland. In the Republic of Ireland, Sinn Féin's um, electoral gains have been much more about their positioning on issues around housing in particular, but also other big public policy issues like health, where they are advocating different approaches to uh, the mainstream political parties. So, Sinn Féin's growth, they they probably enjoyed a higher degree of visibility on the back of, of the Brexit referendum and its outcome. But in terms of their 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 electoral strength subsequent to that, um, it's again much more nuanced um, than, than might be more broadly understood. Whereas on the other hand, the DUP has suffered as a consequence of Brexit and their positioning on Brexit. And that's because other unionist political parties have been able to, or not unionist, but unionist and, and particularly middle ground political parties have been able to poach some of the DUP's voting base because the, some of that base has been alarmed by the extent to which Brexit impinges on Northern Ireland's um, economic well-being in particular. Um, so, so whereas Sinn Féin has enjoyed some electoral success, we have to be careful about how we attribute that. But on the other hand, the mess that is Brexit and the foolhardy way in which the DUP approached it has been a factor in terms of undermining their 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 support base, particularly those voters who are what we would call small or small U unionists. And um, they they have been assuaged by the uh, positions taken by less so the Ulster Unionist Party, but maybe more particularly the Alliance Party of Northern Ireland, which is a, a centre ground party and what we would say is neutral on the constitutional question. So it doesn't take a clear position on whether or not they 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 support a united Ireland. I think, uh, being honest, why not? <laughs> the 
in in my view, the DUP's position on Brexit is the single biggest strategic miscalculation made by a political party on either of these islands in the past century from the outset. And we, we, we know, mirroring, I suppose, some of what was happening in Westminster and Whitehall, very little consideration was given to the possibility of a, a leave outcome. Uh, on the part of of DUP, you know, um, bigwigs when they were deciding the Brexit, you know, the position on the referendum that the party would would hold, and that it would eventually, you know, campaign in in favour of leave. That was a decision that was taken very lightly. That was then consistently doubled down on over the preceding, you know, seven over the you know seven years that that followed, and at each doubling down, the stakes got bigger. And the potential loss, which eventually became, frankly, inevitable. The DUP's decision to, to hitch itself to Boris Johnson's bandwagon was, was, frankly, little short of political suicide. And it came despite the warnings consistently and across the political spectrum that um, that, that Boris Johnson would, would be seeking a form of Brexit that suited him, and not one that suited the, the the DUP or that the DUP would be able to sell to its base, having, as Mary has already suggested, already alienated some of its more moderate voters by backing Brexit in the first place. So it's, it's hemorrhaged support to the left and to the right. That is a, a was a predictable consequence of, of decisions that it took over the course of, of the Brexit process. Thank you, Jonathan. You, you go over there some of the, well, well, quite clear terms, strategic errors of the DUP. I, I do wonder the book, but the book, and Hussein has mentioned this, is, is extremely good at, at showing a very nuanced and complex picture. This isn't just about small p politics uh, of the one party or so on, and that should not distract us from the deeply emotional aspects uh, that come with politics in Northern Ireland. And I, I'm going to refer here to a quote uh, from a unionist leave voter that, that is quoted in the book. Um, and here, here I'm quoting. See, the next day after the vote, I didn't think it would go in our favour. I was driving home and just happened to look up at the sky and a big grin came over my face. And I just felt, for the first time, a sense of freedom which I had never felt before. I felt the country was ours again. Um, I was struck by that quote, and, and I wondered, how does one reconcile uh, Northern Ireland uh, unionism with mainland uh, Great Britain constituency constituents that uh, sometimes appear so disinterested and uh, also ignorant of the sentiments of Northern Ireland's unionists. I think that the word our there is yeah. doing some interesting work. Yeah. Because what Brexit allowed, I think, unionists in Northern Ireland to do was to identify in a very meaningful way, which is actually quite rare, with a a well, a generation defining political event. Um, that united them with people of, uh, an, on the surface, similar viewpoint, similar persuasion, similar outlook on the quote-unquote mainland, um, that the Brexit campaign allowed unionism to identify itself as part of a, 
a bigger imagined community in a way that that it often doesn't, in a way that unionists in Northern Ireland are very cognizant of, actually, that, you know, the kind of perfidious Albion is a trope in unionist political culture, that the the capacity for England and for English politicians to sell Northern Ireland and its unionists out is is a large part of, a defining part, really, of unionist and loyalist political culture. And here comes Brexit, an opportunity that comes draped in the union flag, in that symbolism of this imagined community that that unionists feel themselves to be a part of, but that uh, they're not often recognised on the quote-unquote mainland as belonging to. And in many respects, I think a lot of that explains why so many unionists and loyalists, I think, bought into Brexit as a political project. Now, what eventually became clear, as you, as you intimate in the question, is that actually, you know, Brexit meant different things to different parts of this community that unionists were able to newly imagine themselves a part of. And that ultimately, the greater part of that community didn't have or, uh, you know, unionism and loyalism's best interests uh, at heart, uh, nor did they uh, feel much uh, sadness about, you know, quote unquote, throwing them under the bus when the time came so that England could have its full Brexit. Um, and I think I don't say any of this with any pleasure, because I think I think that one of the, 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 the enduring lessons from this is just how badly all sections of Northern Ireland society are treated, uh, have been treated by British governments over the course of the Brexit process. And I think that that is that is something that we all we you know that everybody in in, in on both of these islands needs to reflect on. Yeah, I, I think Jonathan's explained that really well um, because it, it is very complex and, and in many ways it's intangible and maybe difficult to to understand or to appreciate. But, but we were very attuned to the the poignancy of of that point as well. You know that. That 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 Brexit sort of reflected how unmoored unionists feel from the rest of the United Kingdom, and and it, that it took this this rupture, and um, this this massive constitutional change to to allow them to to identify with the rest of the UK, and um, and I think we're sensitive to that in the book as well. You know, we we acknowledge and recognise that for unionism, uh, at least for elements of unionism. Brexit has 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 been very very difficult, primarily in terms of their own identity and and, and their own sense of self, and uh, their their place with within the United Kingdom that which to which they they really do dedicate their their loyalty. Thank you very much for those yeah um, well well a reflection of, of of the substance of the book as you say Mary the the capacity to to convey every every. Yeah, nuance and complexity there. Uh, I mean, if I if I move on now to, to a question that's more about um, the implications going forward. Um, so the book um, refers to to Northern Ireland being the only part of the UK uh, that has a clear route back to EU membership. And I wondered, for the benefit of our listeners, uh, could you explain exactly why this is the case and how it came to be? Mm-hmm, sure. Um... Again, I think this speaks to the fact that the Irish government had reflected very deeply and for a long time 
um, probably since 2014, in fact, about what the implications of a Brexit vote might mean for Ireland. And there was a sensitivity to the fact that Brexit may lead us down in the direction of this constitutional juncture. So in other words, Brexit may in time uh, lead us down the path towards Irish unity. And the Irish government wanted to create conditions whereby in the event of that happening, that there would be provisions in place which would allow Northern Ireland to automatically become a part of um, the European Union as part of a united Ireland in the event of a yes vote on that question. So they really were contingency planning for the possibility that an Irish referendum vote might happen and contingency planning to ensure that any process whereby Northern Ireland would become part of, of the Republic of Ireland or that that, no, that we would see a united Ireland, that that would not um, present a moment for instability. So, so they really were just trying to, to, to sort of um, cr create clarity about how Northern Ireland um, would be positioned in the aftermath of that vote vis-a-vis -vis EU membership in, in particular. So, um, I mean, that's essentially what what the it's called the United Ireland clause in in common parlance. That's that's what it's called, and that clause was agreed by the um, EU twenty seven as part of the negotiation guidelines. So even before the negotiations ramped up as substantially as they did, uh, the Irish government had pinned down this guarantee that in the event of constitutional change down the road, that the effect would would, would be as destabilizing as possible. Um, and there was some objection on the part of the British government to that clause being, being included. Theresa May, uh, this was the period of around about April 2017, when she was gearing up for a general election. And she was concerned about this United Ireland clause uh, and the impact that it might have or the way in which that might be used during an election campaign. But but ultimately, the EU was on the side of the Irish government. Uh, the Irish remained part of the EU and the EU saw their loyalty as being first and foremost to the Irish government. And Endicheny Asishuk was very, very strongly in favour of having this provision in place from an, a very very early point, and 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 he effectively uh, won that battle. Yeah, thank you. The book um, also, you know, we've we've mentioned Fine Gael, Finnegall, the positions on on a united island. The book also brings a lot of analysis of the approach of successive governments in Marion Street and refers to the idea of this the shared island. Mm -hmm. uh, and I wondered has have has this idea had any resonance in in Northern Ireland, for instance? Well, I suppose just to say that the genesis of the Shared Island um, Initiative is um, linked in, in particular to Thánaiste Michal Martin, who was previously Taoiseach when this particular initiative was, was proposed and rolled out. And the Shared Island Initiative is rooted within the Department of the Taoiseach. It's a small unit there, but one with a large budget. And it's it very much envisages trying to um, stabilise relations between Northern Ireland uh, and the Republic of Ireland during during this period of, of transition and during this period of uh, the UK formally leaving the European Union. And uh, it involves all sorts of plans and projects. Some of them are infrastructural projects to create um, closer closer connections between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Some of them are about dialogue. 
They're about um, shared concerns across the border. And they're an effort to bring people together to talk about some of the challenges that, that both parts of the island are facing against the backdrop of Brexit. The extent to which the Shared Island Initiative has had resonance in Northern Ireland, it has certainly had some resonance. But I would make the point that that resonance has primarily been across nationalist political parties and those of a nationalist political persuasion. It's proven very, very difficult to draw unionists into this conversation because once again, they they construe this shared island initiative as a stepping stone towards a united Ireland. Whereas I think myself and Jonathan would have reservations about that being the motivation of, of Hall Martin. Um, and and those who who see the possibility of a border poll coming in the not too distant future are actually quite critical of the shared island unit that it's not doing sufficiently enough to prepare for the possibility of a border poll. So there there is a a a, a degree of contestation around the merits of the shared island initiative in the Republic of Ireland. Uh, and and there is also a degree of suspicion about the Shared Island Initiative among unionists in Northern Ireland. So it's certainly been a very interesting project and it has produced some some interesting dialogue. Um, but um, the the extent to which it is resonant in Northern Ireland, I suppose, is 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 something that's to be uh, that's to be challenged. Mary mentioned that the Shared Island Initiative is reasonably well funded and that funding is looking to underpin forms of, if you like, material collaboration across across the border um, that go beyond the kind of above and below the political question as to whether or not that border should should exist. But watching on as I am now from the other side of, of the Irish Sea, one of the things that that funding has marked, I think, is the, the way in which the economic question about Irish unity is, is changing and the capacity of the Irish state to, for example, plug gaps in funding for training nurses in Northern Ireland reveals, I think, or is symbolic at least, of some of the the, the the changing nature of the discussion about Irish unity and in particular the role that the economy plays in that discussion. So the idea of the poor South being unable to accommodate, you know, the economic demand that incorporation of the North would represent, I think is sort of being symbolically at least undermined by some of the of the ways that this money is being spent. It's important, though, to emphasise that that money is being spent in ways that are intended to be of material benefit to communities on both sides of, of the border. So training nurses is, you know, is, is a good thing to do, <laughs> frankly. And there is acknowledgement of that. But I, I've noticed that it's had this role, you know, when, when we look at the impact that that, that Brexit and, and of, that, of COVID when we look at the impact of those overlapping crises, if you like, on, on on the economy of the political economy of the British states, and we see to a degree the Irish state able to step in and plug some of the gaps that has been created, that have been created, it raises interesting questions, I think, about the the relative prosperity and the relevant kind of 
prospects for the economic trajectories uh, of the two states on either side of, of the Irish Sea, which in turn plays into the, the issue, the, the debate about, about Irish unity, I think. We've, we've talked, or it's been mentioned in, in passing, the uh, increase in support for the centre ground, and the book underlines that this is one of the most intriguing features of the Brexit period, but it also comes with its destabilising baggage. I wondered if you could say a few words on, on that. Yeah, I think what we were trying to suggest in relation to that point is that the centre ground is neutral on the constitutional question. So they don't advocate for a united Ireland and they remain reasonably happy with the status quo. Um, but but they are fundamentally ambiguous on, on, on the question. And I guess there will come a point, or there may come a point at least, when they will need to take a position on the constitutional question, particularly if the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland calls a border poll. You would expect that a party uh, which is growing in size uh, would have to take a position on the constitutional question. Now, the fact of the matter is that the Alliance Party of Northern Ireland draws support from both communities, Catholic and Protestant, and from both political persuasions, unionist and nationalist. So if there comes a point where they they have to choose um, that 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 could be a, a a moment of not necessarily concern, but but again, it could be a destabilizing moment um, for the party itself and and for Northern Ireland more generally. So um, that's what we're alluding to in in relation to to that particular point. Um, so it's difficult for the Alliance Party. It's it's very difficult. I mean, at the moment, they're very focused on making Northern Ireland work ensuring that relations within Northern Ireland are, are, are functional and, um, and, and calm. Um, and, and, and that's categorically the position that they take. But again, in the event of a border poll, there, 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 there will be that moment when the Alliance Party has to decide one way or the other. And I suppose we would have concerns about whether or not that would alienate certain sections of, of their own electorate and, and what the fallout from that may be. We talked at the beginning about the idea of critical moments and critical junctures where a range of options for constitutional change present themselves. And, you know, the, one of those options that we've talked about a lot is, is Irish unification. Um, but an, another, perhaps more proximate option that has arisen as a, as a, core, as a result of Brexit is the issue of the need to reform the institutions of the Good Friday Agreement themselves to accommodate what the book identifies as this quote-unquote rise of the middle ground. And because as it stands, the institutions of the Good Friday Agreement are predicated on the, you know, the, the dominant division being that between unionist and nationalist, and that has certain exclusionary effects for those that don't identify at all or, or strongly with those identity markers. And there is now ongoing discussion about whether or not uh, the way that government in Northern Ireland is formed may need to be adjusted in order to accommodate the the possibility that the block in the middle, if you like, could be on its way to being bigger than one of the, the two um, blocks on the, who, the division between which the original institutions of the Good Friday Agreement are premised. So this is another type of constitutional change that could need to result uh, from, from this critical moment in Northern Ireland's politics that has flowed from Brexit. 
What I was going to ask is that, um, and, and it, it really follows on from what you've just asked about the Good um, Friday Belfast Agreement. I wondered how would you, you know, summarise the state of bilateral relations between Ireland and the UK now? I, I think the bilateral relationship has improved somewhat, um, and, and that is linked to the premiership of Rishi Sunak. Um, during the period when Boris Johnson was Prime Minister, relations really were at an all-time low, I would suggest. And they were fractious and they were tense. Um, And and the reason for that is because what has always buoyed and supported the British-Irish relationship, particularly in the context of the peace process, has been trust. And that trust really was challenged during Boris Johnson's period as as Prime Minister. Uh, And it it links back to the fact of the uh, proposal to introduce the Internal Market Bill to um, break international law in 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 a specific in particular and specific ways that really undermined the extent to which the Irish government could rely on Britain as a, a, a responsible partner and it had a very serious and dire impact on the British Irish relationship I think that has improved and we have seen um the British Irish Council continue to meet during this period we've seen Rishi Sunak engage with the British Irish Council and again that marks uh, a a, a distinction with past practice. Other British prime ministers have typically not engaged with the British Irish Council. So that was that was welcome and I think symbolically important as well. So we've also seen the um, British Irish Intergovernmental Conference meet and that hadn't met for a period of many, many years. Uh, so, so some of the architecture which supports British Irish relations has been resurrected and has it, the tone is better. I suppose that's the way that I would put it. And <laughs> uh, the the tone of the discussions is better, and um, even the body language between between the participants is better. So, I do think we are seeing um, an improvement in in the relationship, but it went quite low. So the the necessity for for improvement is 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 really quite serious and. I think we would both argue, Jonathan and I, that it is critically important for both governments to remain attentive to that relationship in a context where Britain is no longer a member of the EU. And those formal and informal means of of communication and contact between Britain and Ireland have been lost. The need to be attentive to the relationship and the need to be um, attentive to it, particularly in the context of of instability in Northern Ireland and difficulty in Northern Ireland is 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 all the more real. So, so um, it's it's certainly improved. Um, but arguably, we would like to see that that improvement continue and and crystallise further. No, I'd wondered very much about the institutions because um, because they wouldn't necessarily be very visible. I just wondered if that there was mm-hmm. lights at the sort of mm-hmm. you know the the that um, yeah, the Prime Minister, for example, was. Was um, you know, was turning up in person to to, mm. to to the key meetings. One thing that I kind of always in, insist on drawing attention to when talking about um, Brexit's impact on British-Irish relations is that it has also splintered those relations in interesting ways, such that the relationship, as Mary has already identified, between Dublin and London is absolutely critical in terms of guaranteeing and protecting the 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 Belfast Good Friday Agreement um, and devolved power sharing government in in Northern Ireland, but Brexit has also 
uh, as we you know have, have talked about throughout this and as we talk about in the book created these kind of centrifugal forces which the Irish government is attuned to and that is all that is reflected in and represented by new relationships between uh, Cardiff and Dublin and between Edinburgh and Dublin which have taken on albeit that they are not uh, at present and under the the present set of of circumstances unlikely ever to be as crucially important as the relationship between Dublin and London. But they are more important and more well-resourced than they were before Brexit as a direct product, I would argue, of Brexit. So it's also had this effect of, of, I think, redefining what British-Irish relations mean and that we need, therefore, a reconceptualization of um, uh, of, of how they function uh, mm-hmm. and how they could function in the future uh, and how they can and should involve the devolved governments in in Edinburgh, in in Scotland and Wales as well. We need a we need a, a new constitutional settlement, basically that uh, that accommodates the um, you know what the devolved governments have become and um what they what they represent from 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 now um you know the elections due to be held in um in ireland before um the beginning of 2015 or um, by february 2025 what would is there any prospect of Sinn Féin entering government would you say i think this is a really important question and i think the answer to this question is important for for um for britain we are uh The next election is scheduled on or before February 2025, but there are suggestions that we may see a general election perhaps in the autumn of next year, so so sooner than expected. Uh, Ireland will have European Parliament elections and local government elections in June of 2024. And there is a suggestion that if the European Parliament elections result in a number of by-elections, that the government may make the choice to go to the electorate earlier than February 2025 to to offset any fallout from those by-elections. So so that's the first thing to say. The second thing to say is that Sinn Féin, according to all the opinion polls, is the largest political party in the Republic of Ireland right now. And again, we would expect that to play out as such in the event of a future general election. They, They will not have uh, majority support, so they won't. Uh, they won't be able to form a government alone. They will require coalition partners. The fact of the growth of Sinn Fein has had an impact on other political parties in the Republic of Ireland, particularly those on the left who have been squeezed by the support which Sinn Fein is now winning. So, in terms of coalition partners, the number and size of coalition partners has shrunk somewhat. So that will have an effect on the extent to which Sinn Féin will be able to pull together um, a coalition arrangement. Now, the other point to be made here is that Fianna Fáil is being touted as a possible partner for Sinn Féin in any coalition government. Uh, Micheál Martin has suggested that that will not be the case. But nevertheless, given the outcome, opinions might change and the leadership may even change. I, I, I'm not sure about whether or not Fianna Fáil would choose to go into government with Sinn Féin, because it has typically been the case in Irish politics down through the years that the smaller political party in a coalition arrangement suffers quite markedly at the next general election. So, so Fianna Fáil will, will be attuned to that possibility. But in any case, there is a possibility that Sinn Féin may lead the next Irish government. And what does that mean for the constitutional question? Well, 
Sinn Féin will have the constitutional question front and centre in their manifesto. And they will talk about it extensively. And I would imagine that they will look at ways and means of pursuing that constitutional question um, as a function of them being in government. So I, I, I do think a Sinn Féin-led government will mark a shift in the intensity around plans to pursue a border poll and achieve a united Ireland in the, in the medium term, at least. Um, there will be pushback, of course, during any election campaign. And uh, it, 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 it's, it's, it's very difficult to predict with any degree of clarity this far out from an election what the government might look like following that election. But Sinn Féin being in government will mark a step change in Irish politics. And that's important for Britain, because if they are to pursue the constitutional question with a greater degree of gusto, then that will have implications for Britain's constitutional settlement more broadly. Great. Thank you very much. Um, and our final question um, sort of takes us back to the very start. You, the, the book is premised on the idea of Brexit as a critical juncture. And we just wondered, where are, where are we now? Are we still in the juncture? Are we in some kind of new equilibrium? Are we muddling through? Where are we? I think I think we're probably muddling through. We're we're, we're still muddling through. Um, but I do think what will be important, following up on the previous question, is is elections, and not just elections in Ireland, but elections in the UK in the future as well. What the future British government will look like, and what the future Irish government will look like, um, will will be important. It's also going to be important what happens in Northern Ireland if we do see the institutions return if we do see the situation stabilised there, if we do see the implementation of, of the Windsor Agreement, that really will quell um, any sort of any sort of um, push for, for constitutional change. So there are ways and means and there are conditions and scenarios whereby that process of, of modelling along will, will continue. Uh, and, and we may not reach that point of there being a border poll and a, and, and, and a transformative constitutional change. But I think a lot of this is, is, is really down to uh, electoral and political dynamics um, over, over, over the short term, short to medium term. I think reading back through the book and remembering that period, and we talk about it, right at the outset in the acknowledgements section of trying to write this thing when when Brexit was a kind of constantly changing target. Um, and literally, we would finish drafts of chapters and then have to start them again the following day. And so that kind of, you know, looking back on that, it feels almost like a sort of fever dream that I think we are through and now on the other side of. To me, and this also comes, I suppose, from a position as someone who's who's sort of transitioned from from kind of academic study of of the constitutional politics of these islands to someone who works more directly, kind of in and on them on a day to day basis. It feels like we're in a different phase that that critical that particular critical moment has passed. It has resolved itself into particular kinds of constitutional change that you know. Brexit itself represents a, a seismic political change um, and the kinds of splintering that have come with that, where we now have, you know, um, at the moment, three, hopefully soon, four different governments uh, in uh, in London, in Edinburgh, in, in Cardiff and in 
Belfast, all trying to make sense of um, what these changes and this kind of splintering now means in a way that the UK government is trying to quite kind of keep a, a, a lid on and keep a kind of specific shape to and pulling in a bit here and, you know, letting go a bit there. And all of that used to happen under the context, you know, this unifying context of, of the EU's um, kind of constitutional scaffolding. And now it, it's not there anymore. So, you know, the British state is sort of changing and it, it's changing shape all the time and trying to hold it together, I think, is going to become more and more and more difficult. Um, you know, the recent use of, of, of Section 35 to overturn legislation passed um, by the Scottish government, you know, would that have happened were it not for Brexit? I'm not sure. And the the need, I think, in Whitehall and Westminster, the perceived need to try and hold everything together from the centre is going to come with future kinds of centrifugal force that may then resolve into new kinds of, of critical moments, new critical junctures. So I do think that the Brexit moment is on its way to passing, but I think that necessarily it will um, continue to create new critical moments, new critical junctures that we will be uh, needing to, uh, to, to, uh, to address and think our way through and politic our way through in, in the future. Mary and Jonathan, thank you so much indeed. Thank you very much. Books on Brexit is for anyone interested in the negotiations that form the basis of the UK's relations with the EU and for perspectives on the UK and EU after Brexit. Please listen to other episodes for a range of views.